We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the True Faith podcast, Newcastle United versus Watford Review. You've got Alex Hurst, Adam Windrutten, Ben Wade, special guest, the Daily Mail's Craig Hope today to talk to you about Newcastle United's disappointing draw to many against Watford and also kind of analysis of the start of the season and where all of us, and particularly Craig, uh, see the club going from here for the rest of the, the year. So Craig, thanks thanks for joining us. Great to see you. No problem, guys. Um, your thoughts on Saturday? It was rubbish, wasn't it? <laughs> It certainly wasn't the first half, and my one big concern, the one thing I took away from Saturday was, it was just a, a sense, if you like, of, is apathy the right word? I don't know. Of just not really being where it's at. Listen, I love Saturday 3 o'clock games at, at St James's Park, I really do. There's always that sense of occasion from getting into town to walking up to the ground to being in the stadium to, to going for a beer afterwards. And there was just a time I was sat there in the first half on, on Saturday, and I looked around the stadium, and you had pockets of empty seats, and I just thought, there's something missing here, there really is. And I think that almost translated to, to what we saw on the pitch as well. They lacked energy, they lacked imagination. Uh, and there just wasn't a good feel about the, the whole day, really. And obviously that is a, a byproduct of everything which has happened in the summer with Rafa Benitez and, and Mike Ashley and everything else. That's the, the general feel around the club. But in isolation of what we saw on the pitch, they did absolutely nothing to, to change the situation for me. Uh, you had a first half whereby they were probably lucky to go in level. Watford perhaps should have been uh, two or even three goals up by the time Newcastle equalised. And there's just, you look at it and there's a lack of a, a game plan and a, an idea of what this team are meant to be about or the, the direction in, in which they're heading. Uh, listen, there's, a, there's a, a few new players in there, the likes of Joel Linton and, and what have you, and it probably will take them a little bit of time before, before we see the best of them, but... I've been far from convinced by what we've seen uh, so far this season. In the second half, listen, the second half, they could have won it, they could have lost it. It was almost like two rubbish boxers just missing punches, basically. And, uh, <laughs> two teams who probably will be in the bouts, uh, in the bouts there, the bottom three, bottom four, come the end of the season, I would say. But then I went out afterwards as well, and I went for a pint in town with three lads, one who was a season ticket who gave up. And two lads who are Newcastle fans would go to some games. But none of them had, none of them had been in the game. And we, we spoke about the match for maybe 15, 20 minutes and, and quickly moved on. I don't know what you lads think, but there's just a, already a, a, a bad feeling about this season that it could be quite laborious, it could be quite difficult. There's not much inspiration in terms of what we've seen on the pitch. And certainly in terms of what we saw in the stands and what we felt in the stands on Saturday, it just had a... a 
real feeling of emptiness to it. I think what, what I mean, something I read sort of before the before the game was saying, you know, I don't think that Spurs performance is going to be what what kind of defines our season. It's going to be how we perform against against Watford, against a team that you would expect we should really be picking up three points at home. Even though I mean we struggled last year, they, that one 0 win that was our first that was our first victory that like last season, mm. and they hammered us first half. Like it could it, it could we could have been. We could have been three 0 down at half time in that game. As it as it, as it happens, we didn't. It was one 0 and we sort of went on and started to pick up a bit of form. But it, I think you're right there. We could have lost. We could have won. Had we won, it probably would have felt like it was still a bit of a slog, still a bit yeah. laboured. Nothing's fluid yet, and maybe that's down to a new strike force that that still needs to gel. And you know, if this, you know, in fairness, if this was a Rafa Benitez, and you, you probably would give a little bit of leeway to that and a little bit of uh, maybe a little bit more patience but it's I think the apathy comes from simply we there's very little to be excited about at the minute and the managerial appointment out you know he might yet turn it around it's still hanging in the balance at the minute but he's not somebody who he's going to inspire you know a stadium full of people yeah, well said, and it was a it was a weird day on Saturday. And Ben, I think you said the first five ten minutes, it felt like watching Barcelona, like in terms of the tempo of the game, which is without any of the quality. You know, <laughs> a lot of players walking, a lot of players passing to nobody, and it almost it was almost as the lad next to me in the stand said, it's almost like they were playing the last ten minutes of Spurs. They just started in the same vein. They looked knackered, and then, I mean that that goal was fairly unlucky. It was bad mm. defending. And bad midfield track, but fairly unlucky. And I knew Bruce was going to say that after the game, and that's, that, that's fine. But I just worry that it's like everything these days, particularly with the manager, and Craig, you might be able to give us a bit of insight into mm. how he behaves with, with you, press lads, and what he's like. But I don't think it's okay to say, well, we've taken four points this week and we're due against Leicester. And it's like, but we've been doing that for the past two seasons. Like, this was supposed to be kicking on. This was supposed mm. to be not a relegation battle. And then there's massive chance to go into the international break. And I can't remember the last time when it was an international break, like not in crisis or bottom of the league or had been, even under Pardew, were always rubbish at the start of the season. We could have gone in with six points from four games in the top 10 probably, I've not got the table in front of me, but I know it's it's an embryonic table, but it would have been something to latch onto and for them to turn out that performance in the first half, particularly like you say, was just so demoralising. And yes, we got an equaliser and yes, it was it, it was good at times in the second half. There was actually that sustained 15, 20 minutes of pressure is the kind of thing that I didn't think we were capable of, pinning a team back. But having said that, how many times did we work the goalkeeper? How many times did we get in behind properly? Not on the on the flanks, but in behind the back four. We didn't. And it's a real worry because I thought Watford, like you said, I thought Watford were one of the best teams come to St. James' Park last season in both games. They pissed all over in the cup game. It was embarrassing at times. Um, in the cup game, there should have been three or four up before. They didn't score. That's football. But I thought Watford were dreadful. Dreadful yesterday. Probably one of the worst sides I've seen in a long time come to St. James' Park. And the fact that we're... You know, like you say, Craig, we could have won, we could have lost, draw probably, probably fair, but it, it doesn't give me a, a tremendous amount of hope that we're going to be able to score goals at home, and that's, that's the worry. At no point were they in control of that football match. As a home team, against the side who arrived here on the back of six defeats, talk of, of, of one or two grumblings in the dressing room, a manager who openly admits if he loses, he probably loses his job. And at no point when you're castling control of their own destiny in that game, for me, it was ragged, 
it was so stretched in the second half, like we say, they could have won it, they could have lost it, they didn't deserve to win it, I don't think. Uh, definitely not. And Steve Bruce comes out afterwards, and to go back to what you said, Alex, he dresses up the positives. Four points from four games would have taken this at the start of the season. You know what? If we'd sat here on the Friday before the, the Arsenal game and said four points from the first four games, I would have said, yeah, fair enough, you, you look at what you've got. But you've got to scratch beneath that. You can't just say four points from four games. You've got to look at the evidence. You've got to use your eyes. Now, you can take... There's two schools of thoughts here. Is it a basis from which to build, and is this a work in progress? Or is it a sign of the inconsistency which is going to plague Newcastle's season? For me, so far, in four games, there's been far more to worry about than there has to be encouraged about. The Spurs' performance was obviously the standout, and they were brilliant. Now, that came on the back of a week when they were getting hammered from, from all quarters, myself included. Uh, and I think <laughs> it was almost muscle memory. It was almost going back to that 3-4-2-1. The players thought, you know what, this is something we're familiar with. Backs to the wall. We've been set up like this a million times before. We know exactly what we're doing. Spurs away, on reflection and hindsight, was almost the perfect game and the perfect plan and strategy and everything for what they needed on the back of the, the week which they just had. And listen... To a certain degree, that's good management by Steve Bruce. Being able to ditch the 3-5-2 formation, which bloody hell, he'd somehow managed to hit upon a formation which made Newcastle more exposed at the back and gave them less an attack. <laughs> I mean, that, that really is quite an achievement. But this 3-4-2-1, they knew exactly what they're doing and the players really put it in, be that for themselves, support as the manager, or all three at Spurs, it was excellent. Take away that game. Now, I know people will say you're being selective. Take away that game. Arsenal, for me was a shambles second half. And I think you really had to be inside the stadium to to appreciate just how ragged it was. Players not knowing where they were in the second half. Looking at one another, there was cr- sort of uh, mini conferences going on in the middle of the pitch, quizzical looks being exchanged. And I left the Arsenal game, the final half, I was thinking that was, that was worrying. It, it really was. You then got... The confusion over the substitution, which I'm sorry, that deserved to that deserved coverage. It really did. I know Steve Bruce protested otherwise, and he kind of changed his story. Did he come on in the wrong <laughs> position, or did he come on? And Steve Bruce had a million thoughts in 30 seconds, whereby he said, "You know, this guy told me last week he wanted to be in the Dutch squad at left back, so I best change him." Well, have these thoughts before he comes on, not in the 30 seconds afterwards. And for me, that contributed to the goal. There was a lot of warning signs from the Arsenal game. Okay, it's the first game. Move on. Then we went to Norwich, and one of you guys on the podcast after the Norwich game made a brilliant point, and it was the same point I'd made in the pub after the game. We stayed down in Norwich afterwards. That looked like a team towards the end of a manager's reign, not towards the start of a manager's reign. And that was the reason for my, me personally, my subsequent coverage, which I know some, some who are willing to give Bruce more of a chance have, have come out and criticised my coverage or, or certainly written or said things to, to the contrary, but my analysis of that game, I was paid there to go and analyse a match at Norwich, and my analysis was that that was deeply troubling and deeply worrying, and there was a lot, a lot wrong with it. The body language of the players, Paul Dummett then coming out and saying there was something wrong in the warm-up. Now, Steve misinterpreted that. Steve Bruce thought that was a criticism of the mechanics of the warm-up. It never was. It was a player admitting that he more or less knew they were beat before a ball had been kicked. And myself and Steve, after the Norwich game, ahead of the Spurs game, had a 10-question 10 10 question exchange in the press conference where I was just trying to get through to Steve that, no, this isn't a criticism of you or your coaching staff. It is entirely to do with a mindset of a set of players who, before they kicked the ball in the second game of the season, knew they were beat. That's got to be a concern. That was why the Paul Dummett quotes got the coverage they did. You then go into uh, the Spurs game, everything's good, of course, as we've just spoken about. And then on Saturday, it was just... 
it was back to more to be concerned about than more to be encouraged about. And that, I think that's where we're at now, whereby Steve Bruce keeps on saying we had four points. It took them 10 games or 11 games to get four points last season. Right, that's okay, but you always thought it was heading in the right direction. You always thought with Rafa there was going to be better to come. You were building towards something you probably believed in. Now, listen, we'll give Steve Bruce time. Of course we will. Of course we will. It's only four games in, but I'm far from convinced. Do you want to say it's, it's clearly signs, isn't it? I mean, what when you look at how we approach these four games, I mean, what is the foundations that he's laying here? And I suppose going into <clears throat> what you're sort of querying there, like what, where, how does he, he, he came in talking about he wanted to imprint this certain, a different style to what Rafa had on this team. And after four games, you would hope you would have seen glimpses of, of what that would look like. Mm. And there hasn't really been any of it. He, he talked about playing a more expansive game. Well, I'm sorry, but I, I didn't see any real expansive sort of elements to, to our game against... I think more expansive was by virtue of just not being defensive. Yeah. There wasn't actually a more expansive game yeah. plan. And what you were left with was almost a bit of a nothingness where players were thinking, well, what is the game plan? Spurs, back the, the get the goal, back to the wall. And they were never going to get mm-hmm. beat at Spurs. I mean, I, I watched... It's the only game I've missed since Bruce came other than the China ones, but I wasn't to not actually be in the stadium, sorry. saw it on television. They were never going to get beat. They were excellent. But that was because they had a clear define game plan and use the phrase before it was muscle memory almost I mean they that's the thing as well they know what they're doing I think it's it's interesting because obviously these players are coming from a manager that was so meticulous that literally had every single man knowing exactly what he was doing and they appear to sort of be left to their own devices now and I think you look at Almiron for example at the minute who's literally just running around the pitch like a bit of a headless chicken really mm. and is being given probably free license to do it but he's coming from a very defined role previously that worked very successfully and it's kind of just go out and sort of try and put in, influence the game where you can. Um, but no, there's no real plan there. So he's, he's just picking up uh, pockets of space where he can, but it's, nobody necessarily knows where to find him. Or it's not as if we're, we've got a certain style where we're sort of looking to get in behind him. There was times where the players are dropping too short. And I just think there's, there's a lot of, of sort of mixed methodologies potentially there where I think players are struggling to sort of play together and that they don't really know how, how the team is meant to be playing. Well, I, I, I would argue that Bruce probably doesn't know how he wants his team to be playing because the best result he's had is by reverting to a formation. As you said, I mean, muscle mem- the defensive muscle memory is exactly the phrase I used post-match because it was. And anybody who says Rafa Benitez didn't have any influence on that victory is, mm. is, is, is a liar because, um, or deluded because even a world-class manager couldn't turn what happened against Norwich around in a week <laughs> to what happened at Tottenham. Like, no, nobody can. That, that, only, that only was allowed to happen because of prior context of a, of a full season of them being drilled. But this is, this is like a, it's, it's a light version of what, what Rafa brought, though. So something that's, that's damaging that I saw against Watford in the opening goal is something that I'd sort of seen a bit in the Arsenal game and how we would go for the first, I mean, I remember like sort of like the, the opening um, sort of 20 minutes we were, we were right down Arsenal's throats. We were trying to press really, really high. But it was almost like it was kind of lacking shape and coordination. And what, what, what happened was, in some elements, it sort of turned into a kind of a play, school playground football. Three of them were just rushed towards the corner. And you're playing against Arsenal, really, really good technical side. And the, so three rushed in, and then they just played a couple of passes. They played around you, and suddenly there's a huge gap in space in the midfield. And that's sort of what happened against Watford in the opening. We rushed towards them. One long ball completely did his chest down, pit laid off. Suddenly, Cleverly's just got acres to run into, and then that's how the goal happened. And it's kind of 
it's great to press and it's great to like look energetic, but it needs we need some sort of order and, 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 and discipline for it to work effectively. And that's what I worry that we we simply just don't have that coordination anymore. Do you think it's fair maybe to start criticising some of the players though? We can sit here and criticise Steve Bruce. A lot of these players have come out and praised him publicly. Mm. A lot of them said how much they enjoy training under him. You know, the football club, whenever they put, on the rare occasion, the talk, you know, the talk, the people that run it, talk up the players, how people call them championship players, and it's unfair. Mm. Luke Edwards was on the show a few weeks ago, and he, said he gets the feeling, don't know whether you agree, Craig, that he thinks some of the players um, are better than they think. Um, do you think any of you that the players deserve a bit of criticism here, not just the manager? Definitely. I mean, to be fair to Bruce, if you think he's, he's came in two weeks before the start of the season, so he's not really had a great amount of time to, to come in and establish his methodology necessarily he didn't really have the full pre-season he's had a few games and even on top of that he's had players signed since that point so there's not been a lot of time to embed whatever his his style is um and I suppose as well I mean I think the interesting one was Shelby um he he sort of talked about building a team around Shelby previously and how uh, I think a lot of people would say Shelby's probably our most attacking um and definitely most creative player we've got and yet he's shelved him on the point of the name, but he's he's been um, sacked off very very quickly um, because it just it didn't work uh, in the in the games that he's played in. So um, I think there were certain players have let him down. I, mean, I think on on Saturday, um, I mean you're talking now about sort of the, the space. I mean, when did we ever see? Uh, and I, th- I suppose it was the way Pl- Watford were playing with the, the sort of the three attacking midfielders behind the striker they were getting all sorts of pockets of space and it was just very simple movement, just running in behind the midfield. Hayden and Longstaff were caught out of position quite a few times and I don't remember ever seeing that previously and I think it is that sort of element that you're talking about where sort of players were just lost. Dummett, sort of, I suppose with the runners coming off, Dummett wasn't sure who he was picking up and, and it left that, that massive gap. So I think, as you say, you talk about the muscle memory, the players shouldn't have forgotten all that as well and it seems to be... I don't know if it's communication or what, but there's a lack of understanding in terms of what everyone's roles are. And yes, I think players at the end of the day um, should should still be able to do the basics. But, but maybe it was like a lot of what Rafa Benitez does. People kind of maybe the players relied on well, exactly. his sort of like yeah, direction yeah. and steer like a lot more just from him being on the touchline. That's the point I was going to make. Luke said two weeks ago that a lot of players think they're better than what they actually are. Well, yeah, because they were made to think better. They were made to think they were better. Made to feel they were better. Made to perform they were better than what they were. By a manager who drilled them, who micromanaged from the touchline, be it on the training ground during the week or actually out there on a Saturday afternoon, he micromanaged players to to the point they were left in no doubt as to to what their role was. Now, I'm not saying Steve Bruce isn't doing that. I'm just saying that Rafa Benitez did, and that's the reason that these players overperformed. Now, at Norwich, I had a certain degree of sympathy with Steve Bruce at Norwich because. It was one of those games, and we said this afterwards, you actually had to be there in the stadium, same as Arsenal, they would agree, to appreciate how bad it was. You had to look around the pitch and witness the body language, the slumped shoulders, the head down, the little, the, the, the little comments, the little looks between each other, the bickering, and you thought, this is just not a set of players putting it in for themselves, for the manager, for the supporters, for anyone. And the fact that, and, and I was criticised for this, a lot of people come on to me and said, it's only two games, why are you going for manager after two games? I said, hold on a minute. The two games is actually the aggravating factor in that. The fact that it is two games and it's so bad after two games is the reason for scrutiny, is the reason for criticism. Let's not just wave them through and give them a free pass because it's August. You know, we, 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 we're there to analyse, we're, we're there to, to, to look at these things and it was so bad that you just couldn't ignore it. And 
Listen, on the back of that, you probably all saw that Alex Bruce had a, had a, had a go at me on Twitter, Steve Bruce's son. Uh, I had one or two conversations with other people. I actually had a conversation with Steve Bruce on the phone, which I won't go into the details of it, but you can you can imagine what the, the nature of it was. It was him querying some of the coverage and, and myself defending it. But as I said to all of those people, and get your own house in order. None of this is written about... If you don't bring on Jetro Willems and change his position after 60 seconds or he doesn't know where he's playing, whichever it was, and it then leads, for me, directly to a goal, it's not written about. If your team then doesn't lose all semblance of shape or direction and you've got five players on the left wing together, it's not written about. If you don't go to Norwich and the players, Steve Bruce's own words, don't put their boots on, it's not written about. If Paul Dummett doesn't say there's a problem in a warm-up, it's not written about. Yoshinori Muto doesn't say he's isolated. It's not written about. Before you start moaning about criticism and about scrutiny, get your own house in order. If it's good, we'll say it's good. After the Tottenham game, universally, the coverage was praise, 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 because it was warranted. After Norwich, after Arsenal, to a degree, after Saturday as well, and some of the noise in between times, for me, it's been entirely warranted, everything which has been written. Steve Bruce, before the Tottenham game made pretty much all of his press conference about the criticism, be it from, I think some of it was perhaps directed at myself, a lot of it directed at Michael Chopra. For me, he should have walked into that press conference and said, Michael who? He should have just completely ignored it and made it all about the game, all about the team. Instead, he allowed himself to be distracted by the criticism. I thought, you know what, you've, you've, got, to be, you've got to have a thicker skin than this if, if you really are going to survive here because it hasn't really started yet, the criticism. There's been more spoken and said about criticism of Steve Bruce than what that actually has been criticism. It really has been for me. And he's in danger of becoming distracted and becoming wrapped up in all this so-called noise around the situation that it takes away from the job of organising and motivating the set of players who, let's face it, are capable of surviving in the Premier League. And the response ultimately at Tottenham was brilliant. <laughs> and I thought the way Steve handled the press ahead of the Watford game was better. He was far more measured, far more relaxed. To one little anecdote, just to let you in on, I said to him, uh, I said, are you going to give Andy Carroll a run-out in the uh, international break against behind, behind the closed doors game? And he said, well, we would, Craig, but it's uh, just sort of difficult finding the opposition. I said, we've got a press team, and, you know, fairly easy, <laughs> fairly easy to play against. Why don't you arrange a game against us? He said, uh, it's not a bad idea, that, Craig. He said, don't take this the wrong way, but if we do... I'll put Andy Carroll on you and I'll tell him not to go easy. <laughs> uh, we we so, could probably do with Andy Carroll not overexerting himself. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, Even he, if it is warranted. So he's got my card, Mark. And listen, I do, I do like him. I do. We, we had a pint with him in the county when he first came in, him and his coaching staff. And I actually wrote a really positive piece on the, on the eve of the season all about, you know, the, this, this isn't all doom and gloom. If supporters are given something to cheer here, they will get behind it because they want to. They desperately want to to go to the match and enjoy it and lend the support of the team and the manager. And it was subsequently what I saw is the reason for my coverage. No pre-existing agenda against Steve Bruce or not wanting to get on with him. I actually like him. I actually wish him all the best. He's still got time to, say, turn it around. He, he's still got time to, to make it work. But there's just been a few areas which have concerned me. And that's the thing, isn't it? We spoke in the podcast about his thin skin or perceived thin skin before he took the job. You remember his time at Sunderland from afar when his big issue was not winning football matches, not where he was born, but he seemed to take that very personally. Mm. There was all the stuff 
surrounding the Derby defeat and music and all that kind of stuff. And then more recently at Aston Villa, which, you know, the, the guy who replaced him came in, won every single game and has taken them to the Premier League. So it's, it's, it's very, I mean, I don't know much about Aston Villa, but it doesn't seem like he did a good job there, particularly towards the end. But he took that very personally as well. I know a lot of personal stuff going on at the, the, the same time. That might not have been easy. What worries me about him a little bit, apart from what we've seen on the pitches, he's saying stuff like, you're always one game away for a crisis at Newcastle United. And it, it sounds like his boss, you know, I've heard his, his mm. boss talk, and that's, that's, that's what he says. They're the kind of things that there's this kind of bunker mentality within the club where everyone's against us. And all the press is really negative. No one gives us any good, you know, media coverage. True. And it's not—it's it's not, not true, true, isn't it? It's not true. The fact that you've—he's willing to meet with you, lads—is positive. But then also that he's coming out and saying this kind of stuff, despite that, and, and it's some sort of vendetta. And it's and it's Newcastle, like you say, more actually said about the criticism than criticism. Because all I've seen is after the Norwich disgrace, full away end at Spurs and a bank holder Sunday when there's no trains, mm. and despite a low crowd there yesterday. You know, very no one booed the team off at the end. I thought we were really poor, but there was the team were applauded off the pitch. He couldn't hope for a mm. more supportive crowd in that in that respect. Anyway, at, at no point has the players or the manager been jeered inside the stadium this season. That's a myth, and you you saw the Jamie Carragher column at the weekend as well. That the criticism of Steve Bruce is disgraceful. What <laughs> criticism? It, it's I, I really I thought a lot of what Jamie and he used to work for our paper, and he's an excellent columnist and a brilliant pundit. I thought a lot of what he said within that article made a lot of sense, but ultimately the overall point that this criticism of Steve Bruce is disgraceful for me just missed the, missed the point entirely. And I'm just a little bit concerned that since the, in the wake of the Norwich game, this narrative was being put out there, which began to emerge of this being the impossible job, Steve Bruce inheriting the impossible situation. I'm sorry he didn't. It's not the impossible job. He was starting to make it, he was beginning to make it look like the impossible job, but it's not. He has got a chance. These, it's not a bad set of players. They will win football matches. There is something there to work with, as Rafa Benitez proved. Just get on with the job of doing it. That was my message when I wrote the piece for the Mail on Sunday ahead of the Tottenham game. Just shut out all the noise and just get on with the job. He shouldn't be, absolutely right, he shouldn't be concerned himself, like you said before, with the criticism and get his own house in order. Like I, he, he has enough here and he... It's, it's, it's the way he took this job as well. Like he knew, he knew what he was walking into. He knew the feeling amongst at least some of the very vocal social media pockets of the of the of the supportership. He knew what people thought about him before he took the job. He talked about when he took the job, as Alex alluded to, he was all about this is a, we're going to kick on. You know, we're going to we're going to push on. I mean, I I I, won, I wondered it, to an extent that's that, that, that's it's backing himself, but it it could. It, for me, it borderline, it's borderline arrogance to, to, to think that, given his most recent Premier League track record within the last four or five years at Hull, where he, he finished 16th and then 18th, and suddenly he's saying he's the one to kick on this club. But I, I, I couldn't see those credentials. See, I like that, though. I don't think the club do enough of that. And even if it doesn't work, and I know um, Craig's close personal friend Steve McLaren did something similar <laughs> when he said we're going we're to go for the top eight and that, that probably did Charlie's head in saying stuff like that but at least it was something to get behind like now you look at all the empty seats at the weekend right and I wanted to talk about this in the second half of the show but we're on it um, nowhere when you go on the club's website it says tickets for Watford on sale now £34 calorie. there's no come and support the lads come and support your local heroes and get behind the team as we'll go for three points against Watford there's no like there's no, from within the club, there's no like ambition for like you know let, let's try and sell ourselves and 
you know, former True Faith editor McMartin often says to me, he says he'd love to ask Lee Charney, why should I buy a season ticket in Newcastle? What's mm. the what's the point? And I'm not saying there aren't answers to that question. The, 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 we all do it. It's sat in this room, apart from yourself, Craig, who sits in the press box. So I'm not trying to be, you know, play devil's advocate or anything. I'd like to hear from the club some actual, like, you know what, we've got some good play- players here, like Craig said. We've got a... We've got one of the best stadiums, despite the fact it's looking a bit dated, in the country. We've got a city centre football club, which attracts supporters from all around the world. We've got supporters clubs in the USA, in Cambodia, in Thailand. We're in an international club with an international fan base. Get yourselves to the game and get behind the lads. But it's, what for tickets are now on sale for? £34. There's just nothing. So it's like I, the, I don't mind from Steve Bruce that he's like, well, we're going to try and kick on from last season. Because if if, if, if he's not going to kick on from last season, what's the point in being here? I know he might not, but... No, you're right. It's almost like they've just completely given up on sales and marketing because yeah. it was like there was no communication from them th- through summer no. it was like so why should we buy a ticket and it was like ticket sales have gone <laughs> sorry ticket prices have gone up 25% yeah. <laughs> come and buy it come buy a strip it's the most expensive in the league it's just like oh we've lost two of our top goal scorers oh yeah and the world cast manager Rafa Benitez has gone as well that's what I wanted you know if, if, if you not that the club are ever going to listen to the likes of me or you probably Adam unfortunately for us you know when Rafa Benitez went why wasn't Lee Charney doing a video saying we're good at the lose Rafa but it's a new chapter it's a new opportunity let's go and get a you know, he would have been hanging himself. <laughs> Let's go get a world class <laughs> manager. In in you know, there's not there's none of that. So I, I can criticize criticize Steve Bruce for a lot and will and will have. But I, if he genuinely does believe he's the right man to take us to towards the top ten, I'd rather he said it and not just kind of the you know the previous five six years we had under Pardew and Carver of oh Southampton I've got a good academy and oh they're looking all right this year and oh, you know the, the, there are the tools at Newcastle United for success. Whether we'll have the right people in charge. Is another another question. Do you do you think the club haven't sort of hyped up Steve Bruce enough in that respect? Then, yeah. Well, I think. Well, I think someone, you know, I'll not mention their name. Craig Craig told me that Steve Bruce gave his first press conference in a tracksuit at the training ground. Not at the football club with the world's media there. Mm. You know, kind of flanked by. He did it alongside Joe Linton, yeah, because I think the strategy was that Steve Bruce at St James's in a suit would have welcomed, sorry, would have attracted all manner of questions about Rafa Benitez. I think they thought it would be a, a negative uh, a negative press conference, but it wouldn't. A manager is never stronger than on their very first day in the job, and Steve Bruce wasn't given the chance to sit there at St James's in his suit, puff his chest out and say, this is who I am, what I'm going to do. I thought they really missed a trick with that. The first time I sat down with Steve Bruce in an official capacity was he was alongside Joe Linton, and I think it was almost like a, a little bit of a comfort blanket from having the forty million pound record sign in there. And <laughs> I understand it, I do, but if I you've got a manager shouting from the rooftops, a manager is never stronger than before he's played a game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and right. that, that was the mistake we made right. with Steve McLaren. As soon as Steve McLaren started playing games, bloody hell! But uh, <laughs> Steve McLaren wasn't afforded that opportunity either to build relationships with the press, to sit down in front of us and sell us his vision because he was locked away behind closed doors with the, the preferred media partners. But going back to the wider point, the club just don't engage. They don't. There's, they complain about uh, being. Badly perceived and negative perception among supporters. Okay, but they do nothing to change that. They really don't. It's almost as if they've given up. The attitude is, you know what, supporters hate us. We're going to do fuck all about it. Well, no, actually, get out there and do something. Marketing, media, just everything. Easy PR wins that they haven't taken advantage of. There's an example, 14 miles down the road, of how easy it is to win over supporters. Charlie Methvin, Stuart Donald, 
for all some of the dealings one or two exposed in the Daily Mail, which <laughs> we might not uh, entirely be comfortable with. Do you know what? Most supporters, the response to that article was, so fuck, they've actually given us reason to believe again. We're, we're, we're back on board, we're engaged with a football club, and they've done It's just basic PR, and I will say this about Donald and Methvin, the PR campaign they have engaged in since they came in over a year ago has been first class. It really has been. You've got supporters back in love with their football club, wanting the team to do well, giving them something to believe in even though it might be a bit of a, an empty promise without, without subsequent investment, which it probably looks as if they're, they're going to get now, but that's a, this isn't the, the Roker report, is it? But, uh, <laughs> Thank God. Uh, uh, but, <laughs> but that is what Newcastle need to do. They need to employ someone or something at the football club whereby they can just engage with supporters, because you know what? If you go knocking on a few doors and you go talking to a few guys, if you come and sit where I'm sat now, you might just find supporters are receptive. You really might. They're not as bad as they make out. Uh... Fans want to have something to believe in, no more so than supporters up here. They really don't. And Newcastle, for years now, have missed a trick in that regard. It's like, as you said, because we're so starved of, of success or anything to, to cheer about, we'll latch on at literally anything, anything slightly yeah. positive. We go all out for because it's all we live All we live for is just Newcastle United, give me some good memories. Give me just a good, give me just one good weekend. Every, like, just do something. Make me feel Positive you know, about going to football again, but so we'll latch on. We we will amplify even this, even the tiniest amount of success because we're starved. We're on. We're, we're feeding off crumbs. Yeah, I mean, Lee Charney should come down here and talk to you guys. Have you ever sent the invitation? Or yes, we've spoken to Newcastle United about yeah. those kind of things. That's uh, he's, he's, he's equivalent to Sunderland, Charlie Methvin and Stuart Donnell. I know it's obviously a lower level, but I think that actually does them a lot of good. I really do. Lee Charney could come down here with some season tickets to give away. You know. Yeah. First prize season tickets, second prize two season tickets, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was more thinking like a quiz or something, like get a couple of the players in, do like a couple of quiz rounds or something, just PR. Well, just want to, before we move on the rest of the show, because I want to speak to Craig about some bigger picture stuff, but um, just a perfect example of what you're talking about is actually Rafa Benitez in Castle weren't a great side. On the day, they were all right and with some spectacular results. But if you look at the vast majority of the football mm. were played and results were in the annals of Newcastle United, even as a Premier League club, you know, we, we weren't a good football team, I don't think. Defensively very solid. But you ask any Newcastle fan, you know, the best period under Mike Ashley, it would be the last three seasons when mm. Rafa Benitez was here. And although the football wasn't great and although we had some poor results as well, some good results, it was easy to believe in something and it was you felt part of it. You felt like you were, you were supporting... A cause that was leading somewhere, whereas now, and talk about this in the second half of the show, I'm not quite sure where the club is going, but I'm just going to play an approved message from, from Charlotte to tell you all about our patron, um, and we'll be back with the second half of the show. Hi everybody, it's Charlotte from True Faith. I'm here right now in this podcast to tell you about other podcasts, what we've got coming up this week. We've got an array of great stuff. We are going to be looking at the declining attendance at St. James's Park and take a deep dive into why that might be. Uh, We've got True Faith Any Questions, my favourite show where you guys submit questions and we answer them on any topic. So don't be shy. Uh, We've got Prem Patter, a very popular general Premier League show as we enter the international break and many, many more. So do give them a listen. Encourage your friends to subscribe. It's only $7 because apparently we use dollars a month uh, for five to seven um, additional podcasts done by us. 
with love for you. So do give them all a listen. Thank you. So second half of the show coming up and you know, I want to talk big picture stuff with Craig about Newcastle United. Uh, we didn't get on to Christian Atsu against Watford Ben, so another another time. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Um Right, Craig, first thing that was on the minds of most supporters in recent months was the alleged takeover by the BZG Group. You were very sceptical. Why was that? Well, I'll take you back. I'll tell you the, the story of it. So it was after Sunderland had played in the playoff final, was it? Yeah, playoff final. Yeah, the season. <laughs> and I uh, was sat in a bar, a very nice bar behind King's Cross, sort of four or five pints in myself, colleagues from Sun, Mirror, Star Express, four or five of us having a nice beer. Then this fucking story drops, and <laughs> you're just like, oh, honestly, uh, knew nothing about it, totally blindsided us. Even my colleague from the Sun who was there, his paper, <laughs> he knew nothing about it as well. And you look at it, you start desperately making calls. Uh, the word back from the club is no comment. Straight away, there's a little bit of a, a cause for pause there, and you think maybe there could be something in this, and you think, do you know what, actually, if a takeover is going to happen, it's going to happen like this. And when you get over that initial shock of, oh, I've missed a story, and you want to be the man who breaks the biggest story on the, of the air in terms of Newcastle United being taken over from a northeast perspective, once you get over that, you think, you know what, if it is going to happen, good, this is the way it's going to be done. From nowhere, bang, there was a lot of detail in there in terms of uh, official documentation from the Premier League. And you, you, you quickly file a story, uh, have, another, have another beer, and then a couple of more messages come in, a couple of more calls, and you sort of get to the bottom of where it's probably emerged from and it's this guy mid-hat in the Middle East who's been involved in one or two things before and a journalist on my paper had contact with him that night and straight away that night one or two alarm bells started to sound just the nature of the communications how this fella mid-hat was readily available straight away I thought now if we've got through to the group who are claiming to be taking over Newcastle United tonight why? You don't take over a football club through the Daily Mail or the Sun or any journalist. Why have we had contact with them? So that was the first cause of concern. And we actually, we finished that night, finished up drinking, whatever time it was, went around the group and we said, right, is the takeover genuine? Is this the one? Is this when it's happening? Four votes, three said yes, one said no, and I was the one who said no. I just had a bad feeling that night. So anyway, we go away and the next 48 hours, it's all you're working on. In the Daily Mail with the first paper on the Monday night, uh, Mark Douglas tells the story, he was going on Five Live at the time and the story just dropped and Mark Chapman put it on him about what the Daily Mail had, had written but I think Mark had had sort of similar, had been on the, uh, in privy, uh, sorry, uh, in receipt of similar information during the day. Now the sources close to the Premier League said that all they'd been uh, in receipt of was the deal sheet. Now at all intents and purposes a deal sheet isn't worth the paper it's written on. Myself and you could get a deal sheet with Mike Ashley. If we rang Mike Ashley up and said, Mike, £500 million for the football club, he said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's get it in writing. Uh, is it what heads of agreement, de- what, not deal sheet, heads of agreement, isn't it? Terms of agreement. Uh, the deal sheet's the transfer deadline day one. Uh, yeah, terms of agreement, £500 million. I agree to sell the football club, blah, blah, blah. I'll sign it, you sign it. Put it in the Premier League and that is step one of a takeover. It is a takeover in, it, in its absolute infancy. That's all it is. Anybody can, can get it. Now, Mid-Hat and the BZG group started claiming on the Monday or whenever it was uh, that they'd begun the process of proof of funds and the fit and proper owners test. Now, we were told in, under no circumstance had that process begun. So you start to think, well, 
if you've told one lie or half-truth, how many have you told? As soon as you've told one, there's chances you've told two, three, four, five lies. So a bit sceptical in, in that regard. We then spoke to sources close to Liverpool who had been involved with the PZG group also and this guy Midhat, and they'd said that they were tyre kickers, otherwise known as... as tire, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story on tyre kickers in two minutes as well. <laughs> otherwise known as uh, complete time wasters. When they entered the process with the Liverpool, they were asked to put 15 or £20 million in a bank as proof of whatever, proof of intent, if you like, proof of funds, a deposit to carry it forward, and they weren't able to do that. And Liverpool very quickly dismissed them. So these two bits of information coupled sources close to the Premier League, what we had from Liverpool, the Daily Mail put out a story that night, more or less saying all is not as it seemed. Now don't, don't forget that the Sun story wasn't this could happen, this may happen, it was front page and back page news, this has happened, this man will buy the football club, we've seen the documentation. Problem for me was with the Sun, they misinterpreted or they overegged or they misread the documentation which they had. Great for getting it, and there's a story to be written, absolutely. You can write a story, a terms of agreement has gone into the club, the ball is rolling on a takeover, let's see where it goes. But it was blown up, as in it's done, this is it. Then it became, sorry, then it became apparent that the guy had allowed himself to be known as the cousin of Sheikh Mansour at Manchester City. Now, Manchester City told us in the strongest possible terms it was absolutely nothing to do with him. Again, another, <laughs> again, another half-truth slash lie, and you're thinking, this is all amounting to, to something which I don't feel entirely comfortable with. As time has gone on, I think time has proven this was a takeover which was never, ever going to happen. Sources within Newcastle, close to Newcastle, very quickly realised this as well. Now, why did they allow it to run? Is it because it puts the sale of Newcastle United back in national headlines and there's a means of publicity, you come and get me, play a fresh advert where for sale, perhaps it isn't at that end maybe it's not the worst thing in the world and understand why Mike Ashley didn't kill it others may have more a more cynical take on that, I don't know I, I prefer to, to think it was perhaps the former, that they just thought, you know what, let it run and see if it smokes out any other interest but this BZG group for me were never going to buy the club and will never buy the club it's another Complete waste of time. It's another episode which distracts from what was the most important issue at the time, which was keeping Rafa uh, Benitez at the football club, and that is my my take on it. Sadly, it's mental that there, these people exist out there who pretend to want to buy football clubs. Have you got any idea from your contacts at Liverpool what they were playing at? Like what, from their from their point of view, I think it's probably uh, a vehicle for publicity now. If, say, two years down the line, three years down the line, someone in the Middle East comes to do a, a deal with the BZG group and the Google, Google the Binzayed group, what's the first thing that comes up in a Google search? Linked with a takeover of Newcastle, linked with a takeover of, of Liverpool. Straight away, if you look at that Newcastle story, it puts £350 million into their bank. It makes them look as if they've got wealth to the tune of £350 million at least. We don't know if they have. We don't know if they exist. We don't know what they are or who they are. We still don't know if it's one guy in a bedroom having a laugh with it all. We really don't know that the fact that the only point of contact is a guy who operates off a WhatsApp account <laughs> and who FaceTimes supporters, for me, is just, come on, really, that is not how you buy a football club. This could all still come out in the wash. The entire thing was a, was a, was a complete hoax, a complete wind-up, I don't know. If not, is it, as I used the phrase before, a vehicle for publicity, just to get the name out there, drop it in there, and just let but it... But surely that's, 
it's almost bad publicity. They've, they've failed in there. You know no, what I mean? it, it, it's not because takeovers. Even the bad, even the unprofessional way that they went about the business. Surely that's not going to. That's not going to. I mean, yeah, at one point they released a statement through some the DJ DJ on yeah. Twitter, which they probably haven't banked on the level of scrutiny, and they've probably thought <laughs> that you know what, it's not. I'm not going to. Am I going to speculate as to where the journalists get the stories from? Sources? I'll say I'm not. Then I probably am. Uh, but you've got to think that the the origin of all of this, the driving force behind it, was this this guy in in Dubai, Midhat. Uh, and to that end, the motive, certainly the motivation wasn't to buy a football club, unless it was an Amanda Stavely case of get your name out there, use it as an advert to come on for investors to come on board with you, which I think is what Stavely did. Uh, whether it was that, I don't know. I, I don't even suspect it was that, to be honest with you. But uh, actually, just quickly going back to the tire kicker story when it was. It was the takeover, I forget who was counting which one it was, two, three years ago, and someone said, uh, yeah, this, this latest group who were in, uh, were a bunch of tyre kickers, and I'd never actually heard the phrase before. I thought, wow, that sounds good, a continental tyre firm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I almost wrote the story, continental tyres, ready to... Uh, it's a lot of money uh, in tyres, so... Manufacturers, ready to, ready to come in and take over Newcastle. Uh, do you, here's the next one then, Craig. Do you think, with all of that in mind, do you think that the club is for sale still? And obviously your paper, Martin Samuels did a... Mm. Uh, I, I don't know whether the interview was the right word with Mike Ashley, but they did a piece with Mike Ashley. Um, do, do you think the club is for sale? Do you think he's genuine when he says... What he says, what? we actually don't know this. Right, to sell a football club, you need a buyer. For me, Newcastle United have never had a buyer of the football club during the past eighteen months, two years. Amanda Stavely, Peter Kenyon, BZG weren't buyers of the football club. They simply didn't have the funds, so dismiss that. So to sell a football club, you need someone willing and able to do it. To my knowledge, Mike Ashley hasn't yet had that in front of him. Now, were he to have that in front of him, would he sell the football club, or would he make it difficult? I really don't know. To me, I. I I can't see why we'd want to sell the club. It's a cash cow. And under Rafa Benitez, at least, it was existing to... Sorry, it was renewing its existence, feeding off this cash cow, which is Premier League football. It was almost minimum input for maximum re- return, really. Uh, and I, you, know, you know what? The price of £350 million, if you're going to come into Newcastle United and get it right, I actually think it's a fair price. I really do. For what you've got there, the infrastructure, the guaranteed support, everything about the football club... It's next cab off the rank in terms of being the, the Wolves or the Leicester who can challenge for that top six. I actually think it's, it's worth it. I really do. Will it be sold? We, we need a buyer. It, it, it needs a buyer for, for, for that question to be, to be answered, to be honest with you. Uh, he's clearly not getting much enjoyment out of it. Uh, how can he be and where he wants to take the football club? I don't know. I'm personally still of the suspicion that it exists to exist to survive in the Premier League. Do you subscribe to the idea that, given um, recent um, failings in his retail empire, that actually liquid cash to the tune of about 350 million quid would be pretty damn useful right now? Well, someone said that to me, that the overriding motivation for him to sell the football club now would be the need for cash to go and plug holes in, in other businesses. If that's the case, so be it, because I think Newcastle United never moves on and never fulfills its potential as long as Mike Ashley is owner. I just really don't. That's just not not possible. Other side of the coin, <laughs> sometimes back to the devil, you know, be careful what you wish for. If an owner had come in who would scra- say Amanda Stavey had scrambled the funds together to buy Newcastle United, I think Newcastle United, as of now, would have potentially been in a far worse position than what it is. I really do. 
at least Mike Ashley, you know if it goes tits up and he goes down, it's in his best interests to put a little bit in, to gamble, to, to speculate, to get the football club back to where it back to where it should be. That's he's got a vested interest in that. Other owners might not. They might if it, if it was a gamble from the start for these guys, they might just pull the plug and run. So to a certain degree, I almost feel kind of comforted by Mike Ashley as an owner. <laughs> now I may ask you guys to remove that when you come to edit this, but do you know what I mean in a strange way that he's got a vested interest for it not to go to the wall so that there'll always be a level there whereby he wants it in the Premier League. Another owner, if I use that phrase again, if they come in and scramble the funds and beg, stole and borrow to, to get their hands on your cash United, that's not good. That's not really healthy. If you sell a football club in the championship, you're probably going to get championship owners as Sunderland have found out. If someone is going to buy this football club, £350 million should not be a deterrent. You know what? You should look at it and say... Come in, put the money down. That's almost irrelevant. It's going to take 10 times that to get the club to where it wants to be. If you cash they're going to have owners who are going to be good owners. £350 million is, is irrelevant. Do you, do you agree with that, what I said about Mike Ashley no, in terms of no, better the devil you know? No, or would you take I, anyone? I, I, I think most people anybody. would probably take what, anyone. Yeah, roll think, the dice. Roll I the think, dice, 100%. I think that... Um, we're going to talk about this anyway, but I think the fact that you're now seeing three o'clock kickoffs on a Saturday with... 44,000 people there if that that's not Newcastle United that's Mike Ashley's Newcastle United yeah, and I, I think that I think I agree with you Craig that it exists to exist and I think the people who run the club think they do a great job just because we're not bury mm-hmm. and we don't have to be that and yeah you do, you do it one and there are a lot of chances out there you look at you look at a whole range of football clubs in the past 10 years it, it's really hard to fuck up Newcastle United because like you say there's so many positives about it but he has um, and he shows no signs of willing to, even despite the fact in his interview with your paper where he said I give myself one out of five I've done all these terrible things we're just going to make the same mistakes over and over mm-hmm. and over again we will get relegated he will gamble and it won't work because the two promotions previously I think it's a one in seven chance you've got to get relegated mm-hmm. and then back as, as, as long as the championship with its name has been in existence even though there was a first division before that you know Lightning's not going to strike three times he doesn't have Kevin Nolan and Andy Carroll this mm. time and Colaccini and Gutierrez he's got Andy Carroll oh, he's, got, he's, got, he's got Andy Carroll <laughs> he hasn't right. got that Andy Carroll yeah, he hasn't got that Andy Carroll he hasn't got Rafa Benitez and Musa Sissoko to sell for 30 million and if we get relegated I'm convinced that it will do a Sunderland um, so I, I just want him gone as soon as possible Um I think he's a, an awful man and an awful, an awful owner. But on on the interview, were you yeah. involved or consulted by any of that? Did you know it was no, happening? I knew it was happening. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I really resent people who call it a press release. It wasn't a press release. It was far, far from a press release. You paused there, Alex, when you said call it an interview, if you like. And I do. I get where you're coming from. I know what you're saying. But listen, we can't have it both ways. You can't say Mike Ashley never speaks. We need to hear from Mike Ashley. He then does an interview and then criticise him for it. It wasn't a press release. It was more like a drunken rant. It was a guy shooting from the hip. No subject wasn't covered. He addressed every every topic for me. He really did. He touched on himself, on Rafa, on signs, on the training. He touched on everything. There wasn't anything he didn't cover. Now, listen, you can argue that journalistically there might be more follow-up questions in terms of you'd you'd go into more specific, you'd probe him on, on certain elements of, 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 of different dealings, different, all the rest of it. But... As a package, on the whole, we heard from him. And why I thought it was important was that he spoke a lot there about ambition, about training ground, about putting his own money in. He painted this picture of him being a, a good owner, but I wouldn't melt at times. You know what he's like. He's very good at it. We saw that in the, from the Commons Committee. But 
I thought it was important as a document which now exists and it gives everybody something to hold them to. Journalists, supporters, managers, whoever. That exists now as a document whereby he's talking about ambition and about changing his ways and about trying to get things right. To that end, I thought it was, I thought it was vital. I also thought it was a very entertaining interview. And Martin Samuel, for three, four years, whatever it is now, has been working to get that. Journalistically, I thought it was, we've got that phrase in, in the trade, a brilliant get, I thought it was. It was explosive. The manner in which he went for Rafa was just one of the most incredible things I've ever, uh, incredible things I've read in the past sort of 12 months from a news perspective. No, I thought, I thought it was very good. I, th- I was glad my paper got it. I think that it could be, constru- you know, you t- he says this, he says that. For me, that article lacks scrutiny. And I think yeah. he, he, he lies before. You say we've got like a document that we can hold him accountable to, but he's talked bollocks before. He will talk bollocks again. He talked bollocks there. And it, 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 you say it's, we can hold him accountable. We can't. Because everything, most of the things he, he talks about is, is bullshit. It's complete bollocks. It, 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 a, lot of, a lot of it is, is worrying. It's a worrying lack of understanding about how football works. So in the interview, he talks about how Tottenham shirt deals worth 45 million but then, you know, as, as a fan, and I appreciate that Martin Samuels doesn't know me or any of the Newcastle fan anything because he's writing for a broader, wider mm. football public. But but I would be saying, you know, hang on, Mike, when when you took over, Newcastle were a bigger club than Spurs. And while Spurs have done everything right, and that, you know, even if Mike Ashley was a good owner, Spurs might have been far and away ahead of Newcastle. The reason that we're getting 10 million, as Mike Ashley referenced, and Spurs are getting 45 is because of you, not because of the way football is. And he's saying, I'm not wealthy enough to own Newcastle United. I, one of the things I hate most from fans is when they say we want Mike to invest. I don't want Mike's money in the football club because we'll have to pay it back and we found out last summer what that looked like. So it's not about Mike putting his money in. If he wants to spend £20 million on the trading ground, fucking brilliant. That's, if I was a billionaire, that's the kind of stuff I would be doing, but then that's me and I'm not a billionaire and never will be. What, what I don't get about Mike Ashley is he seems to fail to grasp that the relegations and the things that happened were, were his fault, or at least the people he employed's fault. You look at 2016, Steve McLaren, and everyone knew, everyone knew Steve mm. McLaren was going to get relegated, pretty much everyone, apart from Steve McLaren and Lee Charney, <laughs> knew we were going to get relegated. And people are saying the same thing now. And it's like, you know, you like you say, I mean, you're right, it's the things he said about Rafa and, and Lee Charney has been pretty brutal oh, as yeah, well yeah, on yeah. the record since about it. So there's clearly no love lost. He's kind of saying there was always another thing. And does, does, does Mike, is he not intelligent enough? Or could, or could Martin Samuels not have pointed out and say, hang on, Mike, you know, when, when, when Rafa was always after something else, that's what fans want from the people who represent them or who work in the football club. They, they, they never want to settle for 13th place in the league. And it's just, you know, yes, fine, interview. Not, I, I don't think it was a press release, but I thought it was, it looked like Martin Samuels just giving him carte blanche without well, any... Okay. It, was, it felt one way. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, it was one person's version. At the same time, the Times did an interview with Rafa Benitez 10 days previous. That was Rafa's version. Nobody criticised that because that is what supporters want to hear and want to, want to believe. Uh, now, the Times did brilliantly to get Rafa. It was an interview we all wanted. That was his version. A week later in the mail, here was Mike Ashley's version. You can't criticise one and not criticise the other. It's two two different persons' version of the the same problem, the same quarrel, the, the, the same argument. That's a good point, but then you've got to look at the characters of the people who are saying those things and you mm. weigh up against what has Mike Ashley said and done in the last 10 years, what's Rafa Benitez done and said in the last 10 years. I do think that the truth probably exists somewhere in between. You know, Listen, it wasn't all sweetness and light with I Rafa. I appreciate that, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, Rafa could be awkward at some point. The one thing I liked about Rafa was I think he... He ultimately wanted the 
the very best for that team on the pitch. He wanted that team to be the best it possibly could be on the pitch because ultimately that reflected on him. There were certain things he couldn't quite get his head around. And this comes back to communication as well, that it was all one way. It was Rafa who, who held court for the best part of 18 months or whatever it was, no, two, two and a half years since the, the, uh, the, transfer, the January transfer window in the championship. When this all started, all the briefings, all the little noises in the background is to, I'm not getting what I want. It might actually, is this, that, and the other, leech on me, and all the rest of it. Newcastle, when Rafa went, then started to, to brief, or certainly people close to it started to, to brief against Rafa. And it was, it was almost too late, really. The, the, the die had been cast. Rafa had been allowed to control the narrative for so long that the, 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 the horse had bolted, so to speak. But there is a different version of events which exists, whereby, for example, last summer, apparently, uh, depending on who you believe, Newcastle are ready to put down uh, 30-odd million pounds for, is it Maxi Gomez, the guy who's just gone to Valencia? Uh, this summer in the club insist the money was there to to sign players and the people who are close to it say with Rafa it was never enough there was always one more thing one north one more thing and in the end he became impossible to manage that this split was was inevitable really because I do think that there was a a job there but listen they've spent what 60 million pound this summer I think Rafa Benitez has been given that 60 million pound they would have spent it infinitely better than than what they have uh there was a framework there to work within. Rafa Benitez just wasn't willing to work within it. it prime test cases run on. He wanted to sign a player who turned 30 for £60 million. The club just wouldn't do that. Personally, I think if you sign Rondon this season, you end up getting enough out of him over the course of the next two years to make a difference on the, on the pitch, perhaps bringing someone younger to be... I thought Rafa was right in, that, right in that instance, and he just couldn't sign up to the club's model. He couldn't do it. And once we knew that, and that was apparent from a long way out, it was always going to end up in divorce. But this, sorry, go sorry, on. I was going to say, is this not the issue though? Because I mean, so Ash has come out in his interview admitting he's made mistakes, but he keeps making the same mistakes mm. and he doesn't ever learn. And that's the issue is, is you, it's, you, you kind of keep getting away with say, holding your hands up and saying, yeah, I've made mistakes, but I'm going to keep repeating well, them. Well, it depends if it's a, a mistake or not. What happens if Joe Linton actually turned out or does turn out to score 20 goals this season and we reflect at the end of the year and you say, you know what? We've now got a, a young kid here, 22, 23, who's worth every penny of his £40 million. There's a few clubs sniffing around him. If we had got Rondon, he might have picked up a, another injury. You know, you could be reflecting at the end of the season saying Mike Ashley's model works if Joe Linton's a hit. You might not. We, there's every yeah. chance we might not. But there's every chance. And I think Joe Linton's a good player. I like what I've seen from him in batches, although I'm, I feel like it's 2014 again, watching him play when Papi Cissé was miles too deep and then Mitrovic was miles too deep. That comes down to the manager to get the most out of what yeah, he's been given. Absolutely. And that's the thing, isn't it? When you say Rafa didn't want to fit within the model, what, what I mean, this is probably a question you can't answer, you know, what would need Lee Charlie to be sat there or someone to put it to him. What, you know, makes Newcastle United think that their model will be the successful one because we've tried it already. It's not, so it's not like we could be sat here at the end of the season and, you know, maybe they think, oh, you know, why don't, we, why don't they give her a chance? You had a chance in 2015-16, we spent money, European players, no Premier League experience, shit manager, and, and look what happened. So it's, it's, that, that's the fear of a lot of fans, that's history repeating themselves. And that's why you see 8,000, possibly more than 8,000 empty seats at a football match, because even if Newcastle won that game 3-1, and we could have, it's not outside the realms of possibility, mm. we would still be sat here in this room you know, yeah, would be happier that would win a game and all those things I talked about earlier would have happened. But people, people, it's my interpretation that people think eventually it'll go tits up. Eventually they'll mm. push their luck too far, like they did under Steve McLaren. You know, that 
I don't want to go over ancient history here, but he reportedly was, you know, said we need a Premier League striker, we need experience in this mm. young European team, and they just ignored him. Charlie Austin, yeah, yeah, and they got relegated, and that's that's the major fear. And I'm interested to, you know, from someone who, like you say, Craig, you went out after the match and you spoke to lads who who haven't been at the game. Do you think there's anything that will bring those lads back this season? Probably if Mike actually goes. I mean, in terms of the isolation of this season. Uh, Ultimately, one of my good friends, his motivation for not going is Mike Ashley. Uh, and until he sells the football club, then, then he won't come back. Uh, coming back this season, listen, if you put something exciting on the pitch, the majority of supporters, I use the word majority, yeah, I probably would say majority, judging by attendance, is 44,000 is a majority, yeah, we'll use it. The majority of supporters want to get up on a Saturday morning. And I did the piece with Rob from True Faith in the Daily Mail a couple of weeks ago, and he was excellent. Uh, and he said, I just want to get up on a Saturday morning, have that buzz, look forward to getting the Metro, meet my mates, pint before the game, go and cheer on the team, have something to believe in, and uh, and afterwards have a beer and talk about it. And if I was a supporter, I think I would probably subscribe to that. So I went through, I went for a beer with Rob and with Michael Martin, and bloody hell, that was two absolute polar opposites in terms of <laughs> in terms of opinion. But it made great it, content, though. Yeah, it, it did. It made a good piece, and that's all I was bothered about, to be honest with you. But uh, in terms of my experience previously as, as a supporter, I don't know, I think I would probably perhaps side more with, with Rob. And I've had this conversation with you, Alex, as well, on the record and off the record, that you yourself don't want to be denied your match day experience. So ultimately, if there is something on the pitch to get behind, I think a lot of supporters are able to divorce themselves from what goes on at board level and just go and support the team and enjoy their day. Done nearly an hour, so we'll have to wrap up. But uh, Craig and maybe the lads can come in after you've spoken here. How is it going to go this season? What do you think? It was a point I was going to make before then in terms of the uh, the investment and all all the rest of it. Let's not kid ourselves. They've spent £60 million this summer, but Joe Linton to Mike Ashley is a roulette chip. He really is. There's a reason he was talking so passionately about putting down £20 million of his own money because he sees it as a gamble. And let's not kid ourselves into believing that they're building something for the future here whereby these young players are going to stay in Newcastle for the next eight, nine, ten years. It's a model which is built primarily around a balance sheet. That is the motivation for signing Joe Linton and not Solomon Rondon. Uh, now listen, it could work, and if Newcastle get two good years out of them, then you can argue you know, every, everyone's a winner to a degree, but then the process repeats itself all over again. But the reason they've spent £40 million on Joe Linton is ultimately to sell him for, for £60, £70 million. How will it go this season? Uh, it's going to be a struggle. Four points from four games is probably fair about reflection of how they're going to go all year, probably a point a game, because this team will win games. They're not awful. They're really not. Uh, if you've got 38 points at the end of the season, by the very nature of that, you've been in a scrap all year. I do fear this year, though, that more than I have done the past two seasons, it could just end up the wrong side of that line. I really do. With Rafa Benitez, I always trusted. I always had that faith of a better day, that element of trust in the manager. I'm not saying I won't have that, but I haven't got that yet in Steve Bruce. And I've seen more to worry me than to cheer me so far. And I think they'll go mightily close to, to going down. From, from my perspective, I think had we lost against the two um, London teams, Arsenal Spurs, had we drawn away to Norwich and then won at Watford, you'd sort of think same amount of points. You'd sort of think, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's 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 pretty much where I, you know, given the circumstance of where we are, I'd say that was that would be that would be okay. But I think as, as Craig's alluded to, it's kind of 
It's more than that. It's what's below the surface. It's it's the it's the manner of the performance of, against Norwich. And for me, the, the biggest worry for us this season, moving forward, is scoring goals. So last season we were like the fifth lowest scorers in the entire league. Mm-hmm. We've lost. So, so so Perez and Rondon were two one in three strikers last season. One in three, which is a really decent strike rate. And 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 looking at the looking at our attackers that we have in the squad at the moment. You know, the only in terms of their entire Premier League careers, not just for Newcastle, you've got like Gale, who's a one in five striker in the Premier League. You've got Muto, one in twenty for Newcastle. <laughs> Almiron hasn't scored. Atsu's a one in a one in twenty one player. You've got Joe Linton, who's got one in four, and that's fairly encouraging for somebody who's only just arrived in the country. Mm. The best striker we have in terms of his Premier League career, goals to games. Hang on, Fabian Share. That's not. Uh, <laughs> it's strictly the attacking. It's, it's Andy Carroll, Carroll who's a one in Carroll. one in two and a half games. Mm. He's got most eight, of them were scored for us <laughs> ten years ago. Exactly, but he's got eighty four and two hundred eleven games. And so, my worry is that how does Bruce, how does Bruce turn a, a team with very very few Premier League goal scorers into a team that's going to have to better. The, the fifth lowest scorers because the only reason that we didn't go down being the fifth lowest scorers is that we had the seventh best defence in the league mm. yet I don't think we're going to have that this season so as, 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 as you said you know we're, we're creating less we are actually having fewer shots per game this season so far the defence seems a lot more porous and less organised as it has been hopefully that's just down to maybe you know the, 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 new, the new players the new mm. wing backs need just to bed in a little bit longer but He's that. That's for me. He needs to get this team scoring goals, and actually, that's going to get, as you've said again, that's going to get the crowds back. That's going to get the excitement up, and that's going to get the belief through the roof that we can actually do something or at least survive without it being going down to the wire, down to the last game of the season. But we have to score goals, and I'm sorry, but that's too much pressure on Joel Linton, and it's unfair. Ben, same question. Yeah, I mean that's that's the risk. Is that I mean you look at. The teams that have come up over the last few years, I know we haven't, but you look at some of the, the teams that have come up to try to have a go and try to play expansively, it's not gone well for, for many of them. Um, there's, there's none that you would say have, have, have come up and tried to play expansively and, and maintained in the league. Um, and it's because at the end of the day, most teams will default to that defensive stance to just stay stay in games and, and sort of try and consolidate. And I think the risk is, is you need a lot of money <laughs> And quality players to be able to come out and attack teams because I mean we've we've seen it for years um, under Rafa uh, the games like your Brighton's and Huddersfield have all be, always been really tight tight um, defensive affairs really and there's been one goal in it basically he's nicked it every time um, if you go out and try and sort of <laughs> batter one of those teams you're quite easily gonna 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 be on the receiving end and, and sort of the the points available are at a premium. You don't get many options to win win Premier League football games, um, and as I say, it's, it's all reliant on you spending big money. I mean, forty million on Jonathan. You were saying it before it, it is a massive, massive risk because it, it just stinks of of the Mitrovic deal again. Sort of similar that there was a lot of promise on, and there was a lot of potential in 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 that deal, and it was sort of fairly um, a fairly high price paid at the time. But it's it's all down to an unproven player, and you haven't really got the. The, the sort of the, the team around him to, to create the chances as you say we're creating it even fewer chances now than we were last year so how is he going to unless he's picking the ball up from the halfway line and skidding everyone mm. scoring how the fuck is he going to score so I, I just don't see where we're going to where, where the goals we're going to get the goals enough to, to combat that so unfortunately I think 
we need to go back to type and do what we our strength is the defence. Mm. We've got really strong defenders. We've got yeah. three or four of three or four best players are probably our centre backs. Um, so I have no problems with them ploughing them all in. I mean Lejeune and uh, and Shaw at times play some of the best attacking football we've got as well <laughs> and create some of the most chances. So um, I don't particularly have a problem with that. Um, and I think that's probably the best way we play. But if Bruce thinks he's, he's got to abandon that, then that's that's a massive risk. And I've got concerns with that. And I, to be honest, I, I can't really see um, how we're, we're going to stay up at the minute because I think it's just too much. It's too much of a gamble. They've, as you say, they've, we've sold our sort of mainstay players that we could rely on, and it's just it's basically sort of on a on a better sand. They're going to stay up by winning games one nil, absolutely. And Steve Bruce won't abandon the three at the back. We've seen two variations of it so far: three five two, which for me ended up when you broke it down. It had five players, half the team playing slightly out of position in terms of while Sean Longstaff and Isaac Hayden were in effect in central midfield. They weren't in that preferred central midfield position. You had Isaac Hayden playing higher on the right, Sean Longstaff playing a little bit too high on the left. Uh, you had a wing-back who would prefer to be a full-back. Uh, you had Almiron in a position he's not comfortable with. You had Matt Ritchie as a left wing-back. There's a great job, but probably prefers to be a bit higher up the pitch. So straight away, you had five players in that three-five-two who weren't in the position most comfortable, and that is, that is too many. You revert to the three-four-two-one, and I think it's got a far better feel, a far better fit. And they are going to win games by... Tottenham away was just perfect for them. It really was. Can they go to Liverpool and do the same? Uh, that theory will probably be tested. But, uh, but yeah, listen, they aren't going to be blowing teams away. This, this team never has. Even in the Rafa, it didn't. Even in the Rafa, it didn't. But the point you make, Adam, about the goals is... It's huge, it really is. You can't remove 23 goals from that team and not expect a struggle. Positives. I'll, I'll say some positives because we'll have to, I think... Like you say, Ben, Lejeune's got to come back into this team. For the team we saw on Saturday, Florian Lejeune, Matt Ritchie, um, Andy Carroll, potentially, who knows what that's going to look like. Who knows? Uh, Andy Depends Carroll. how he comes through that game with me first. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the lad St. Maximine, again, there's every chance that you get all of those lads in the pitch at once, which is a big ask, with the rest of them. The, the, the improve as the weeks go on, they get better and it might come together and we might have another season like last season where we aren't in the relegation picture come March. I think that's what everyone wants. If you're out of the shit by the time it starts getting serious, the last 10 games, mm. that's probably going to be viewed as a successful season. My issue in long term with that is, well, great, what happens next year? Because we did that two seasons ago. We did it last season. What, what would be different about next season? On the other side of the coin, I'd say if they managed to do that this season, I'd say it would be a huge success because this summer was a car crash. And from the minute Rafa Benitez stayed at the football club until June the 30th, having known he was going to go for me two, three, four weeks earlier, wherever it was, it put the football club on the back foot. And I've got a certain degree of sympathy with them in that regard. It was a car crash of a summer. The, manager of, the nature of the manager going, the nature of the subsequent search and Steve Bruce coming in where... Ultimately, let's be honest, the key criteria was somebody who would take it before the flight left for China. Uh, this season was always going to be a struggle, losing the players they did. So if Steve Bruce, listen, if somehow he can manage to patch together a season whereby, even if they're not clear of, of trouble come March, as, as is your wish, personally, I think that's probably going to be impossible. But if they manage to stay up come May, and then you build from there, listen, I think... Give them a chance. I think ultimately this season it's sad because we've said it so many times in the past. Just staying up's got to be the sole the sole aim. We'll finish it there. Thanks so much, Craig, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Hopefully, we'll see you again this season. And uh, thanks uh, for listening. Thanks, Ben and Adam. And remember, you can catch our extra shows on Patreon for 
about two, three quid a week. Uh, we'll do five to seven extra podcasts and join the, the few hundred others who, who get involved. And uh, yeah, we'll have a free show back in two weeks' time. Uh, we've got a few of the lads in Charlotte down at Liverpool, so no doubt they'll be reporting on a, a comfortable win for Newcastle. Uh, thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.